Hello again, this is Vernon Mann with some more tales from life on the road as a TV news guy in the days before mobiles, the internet, credit cards and decent satellite communications. Sorry I've not posted for a while, I know you miss me. I had to really strain the brain to recall some more stories from, let's face it, a long, long time ago. I'm not going to take you on the road today for a change, but I invite you to join me for a day or so on the foreign desk in London, where I rejoice in the grand title of Deputy Senior Foreign Editor. The trouble with this business is that when you've had and enjoyed a few successful and adventurous years travelling the world as a producer away from office politics and such like, covering wars, revolutions, disasters and so on, spending the company's money like water, the people in charge like to reel you in and remind you that, guess what, you're actually an employee like everyone else, really. And like everyone else, you need to be behind a desk. Now, I've not been behind a desk or had regular hours for five years. I'm a novice at office politics and a little too direct in meetings. I am not wildly ecstatic to have been dragged inside, although it is, I guess, a sort of promotion. The Deputy Senior Foreign Editor's Day officially starts around 7.30. The company pay for a taxi to pick me up in Chiswick and pay for one to take me home sometime around 11 o'clock at night. Essentially, I'm in charge of the world, responsible for coverage of all the big stories happening in it. I can send reporters and camera crews and editors anywhere I like so long as I don't exceed the budget, which is not always that generous. I man the desk for 14 plus hours a day, but only for seven days a fortnight. So, I work Monday, Tuesday, and Friday, Saturday, Sunday one week, and only on Wednesdays and Thursdays the second week. It's a great shift pattern. The working day, though, often begins at dawn, if not before, with a call at home from a correspondent in some foreign land, eager to pitch his ideas, or from an insecure newbie on his first trip, anxious to get more feedback on his story, the one we ran the night before. The mental well-being of our staff is, of course, of concern, as it is now. Vernon, I'm so depressed, says our African correspondent on an early call from his sunshiny Johannesburg villa. It's been deadly quiet here for weeks, he moans, and I've got nothing on the air for ages. I'm seriously quite depressed. Call me back when you're not, I reply, slamming down the phone. I have this vision of him sitting by his pool in the warm sunshine, snapping his fingers for his servant boy to bring him another beer. As a deputy senior foreign editor, I have my own team of specialist foreign desk assistants, fantastic ladies, don't know why no men, who know everything there is to know about our camera crews, their personal situations, stability of their marriages, latest girlfriends, financial status, drinking and gambling habits. One of them has just ended an affair with a senior cameraman and is still a little sad. They know everyone at Eurovision, the TV exchange network in Brussels, through which European broadcasters exchange news film two or three times a day. They know all the freelance cameramen scattered around the world, guys our correspondents can link up with to save us sending our own crews. I've worked with many of them. They're a colourful, roguish lot. One, in Rhodesia, before Zimbabwean independence, invoices and is paid for a sound man called Rufus. In restaurants, he gets receipts for meals for two. Rufus is, in fact, his dog. Everybody knows, except those who should. Three dogs have held the post so far, all called Rufus. I really should dob him in, but he turns out any time, day or night, is a great character and has put his life on the line for us time after time.
We have a completely mad agency cameraman in the Middle East, renowned for his fearlessness or stupidity in war. On a rare quiet day in Beirut, he takes me across the dangerous green line dividing the city to an Armenian market. I buy three Bakelite cuckoo clocks for a tenner, as you do. Made in CCCP, it says in Russian. That's the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, before the Soviet Union. One of the clocks actually works, a moth-eaten cuckoo appearing every hour and cuckooing in a gravelly Russian accent. My wife hates it. I digress. The foreign desk assistants, one works with me every day, know how to book satellite feeds, how to ship film, how to get crews on full flights with loads of heavy kit, how to clear film through customs. They know more about foreign desk operations and routines than I do. So, once I've picked the reporter and crew I want to send overseas on a story, once I've briefed them and wished them luck, I hand all the travelling details over to my assistant and, depending on the hour, go to the pub. The deputy senior foreign editor, OK, I won't use that title again, let's just say foreign editor, even though that's giving myself another promotion. Why not? Esconced on the foreign desk, I feel a bit like a Roman emperor. I have the power to brighten up the life of a reporter, maybe kickstart his or her career by picking him or her for a foreign assignment. I have the power to ruin another's day by not picking him or her for a foreign assignment. Newsrooms in the early mornings are a bit like a battlefield at dawn. All is calm, but you know the shit will hit the fan one way or another before the day is out. Or a better analogy might be blank canvas. You've splashed a bit of colour on with the scheduled news events like maybe a by-election, a royal family occasion, but you've still got half a canvas to fill. So as <clears throat> foreign editor, I settle with the first of a million coffees a day and light a cigarette. I've already listened to the BBC Radio World News, so I have an idea of what's going on. Now I scan the foreign news pages of the newspapers and study the detailed handover from my colleague from the night before, who's been assigned where, who's working on what, and all the latest rumours. Then I scour the news agency wire services Associated Press, Reuters and United Press International. Their reports clatter in on the telex machine, an endless flow of paper, a never-ending avalanche of troubles, conflict, human tragedies and disasters, big and small. Bad news is box office. Someone started up a good news agency in San Francisco in the 60s. It quickly went broke. I get on to our bureaus in Washington and then Tel Aviv, where we've based our Middle East correspondent. What are they up to? What's going on where they are? I don't call Joburg. I try to talk to as many of the reporters in the field as I can, though often it's impossible to get through, and I just have to wait until they are in a position to call me. It's a bit nerve-wracking if they're in a war zone. The deputy editor sidles quietly up to my desk. How's it looking, matey? he inquires. He's fifty-ish, shortish, wispy grey hair, cigarette burning in a hand, slightly shaking after his previous night's intake. I fill him in. He's a lovely man with an intense hatred of Russia and the Soviet bloc. Why? Simply because they won't let our cameras in. One day they will, one day they bloody well will, he insists often, a look of fierce determination in his eyes. He's in the office five days a week, from 8am sometimes through till after the bulletin, at half past ten. The company is his life. As in a way, I suppose it's mine right now. One night he gets picked up by his minicab a little on the tired side, only to be returned five minutes later, his jumper on fire, the cabbie leaping angrily from his smoke-filled car, screaming for a fire extinguisher. The deputy editor has dropped a cigarette end on his jumper as he nods off to sleep. 
Security puts a fire out. He's wide awake this morning, though, and moves on to the home news editor to discuss the day's upcoming events. He talks almost in whispers, like he's in some sort of conspiracy, like he's worried the Russians might be listening in. At half past ten, there's the first of many meetings throughout the day. This, though, is the big one, where the day's news agenda is set. Producers from the lunchtime, early evening and ten o'clock news, senior home news editors, duty news editors, forward planning news editors, assignment managers, heads of this and that, and an accountant. Killjoys, we call the accountants. Sorry, guys, love you, really. Especially Patricia. My role as deputy senior, sorry, as a foreign editor, is simply to read out a list of stories expected in for the various bulletins that day and then to respond to usually silly queries from the producers. That's the trouble with meetings. Everybody feels they have to say something, whether they actually have anything to say or not. It's a career progress thing. If I say nothing, they think, nobody will know I'm here, so I'd better say something, no matter if it's complete garbage. After the meeting, people break off in huddles, programme editors and their teams furtively discussing plans for their upcoming shows. And so the day progresses. I cast an eye over the reporter's desk. A couple of them try to catch mine. I know how they feel. Getting picked to cover a big international story can be a very positive career move, if you get it right. I was lucky to get my first producing assignment to cover an oil rig blowout off Norway, simply because I lived closest to the airport, and it was a Saturday, so not many other contenders were around. Sometimes you get lucky. At lunchtime, it's a pint or three with a home news editor. Reporters zoom in on us, offering more drinks, but they can't buy me, oh no. Just a half, thanks. There are reporters I respect, and ones I don't, and one or two I think should be given a chance. Most days, pints morph into lunch, a proper lunch, not a takeaway sandwich. You can't discuss world affairs over a sandwich. So it's a starter and mains and naturally a glass of wine or two. We never used to eat puddings until the company banned alcohol on expenses. Everybody still drinks alcohol, but it gets put down on the bill as puddings. Conveniently, they're about the same price. Funny that. Someone in the accounts really should have spotted the sudden change in diet. I know, I know, some of you have been appalled at the amount of alcohol consumed during the news-gathering process. Don't you know that alcohol stimulates the imagination? Relaxes your inhibitions. We work long hours, very long hours. So, after a lively lunch on the company Amex card, we return to the fray full of fantastical ideas to pass on to our troops in the field, who usually ignore them. By now, mid-afternoon, the newsroom temperature is hotting up as new news comes in. Reporters and producers put together their stories, packages we call them, and I act as intermediary between our man covering the famine in Sudan, who's demanding three minutes of airtime, and the programme editor, bored with bodies, who says he can only have a minute and a half. It's so bloody depressing, says a reporter in Sudan, over a very crackly line. Well, at least you've got something to eat, I counter, in my usual caring way. Only joking, I add quickly. During the afternoon, I watch my satellite feeds come in. A quiet day, really. One story from the Middle East, the famine in Sudan. We had to get Khartoum to send it three times before we got a glitch-free copy. And a feed from Washington about some political row or another. The early evening news goes out smoothly. We go out to the pub again. We need to stretch our legs. There's a meeting at seven. People come down from the bar on the seventh floor. Others appear with doner kebabs from the Turkish cafe around the corner. 
the kebabs stink, prompting an outburst of disgust from the newsreader, who, as usual, had had a snifter or two and is in a grump after losing at bar billiards in the pub. The programme director, the one who makes it all come together in the studio, is a colourful middle-aged lady from Wales, renowned for her professional expertise, good nature, a liking for good whisky and her foul language. In the studio once, about to direct the lunchtime news, she asked the floor manager to, and I quote, tell the effer in purple to move to his left a bit. The gentleman in purple heard this, he wasn't supposed to, and obligingly moved to his left. He's the Archbishop of Canterbury. She tells a young scriptwriter complaining that his words had been cut back to get back to your desk and grow a bloody willy. She can say things like that without causing offence. To women as well, though not about willies. The seven o'clock meeting is usually a short one, designed mainly, I suspect, to make sure everyone's back from the pubs and wine bars. I reassure the programme editor, an excitable chap, whom I suspect is having a fling with my glamorous boss, the foreign editor, that all my stuff is coming along fine. The pace then hots up again as writers bash out scripts, reporters and their film editors work feverishly to put their stories together, and the programme editor frets about what story to kick off the news with. Usually the programme running order is pretty much done and dusted by eight o'clock, and the atmosphere chills a little. Very occasionally, incidents other than news disturb the calm. Like two reporters, a little the worse for wear, rolling around the floor throwing useless punches at each other. Nobody takes any notice. Apparently it's a wife thing you wouldn't want to know. Another night, industrial correspondents, the guys who mostly cover strikes, they call them business correspondents now, take some British Airways PRs out to a long lunch. They then go home, leaving a comatose girl in British Airways uniform stretched out across two desks, snoring loudly. Again, nobody's taking any notice, until the deputy editor spots her and circles the desk slowly, like a cat, worrying that its injured prey might wake up and bite him. Puffing nervously on his cigarette, he asks, Any idea who she is, matey? Not a clue, boss. We let her sleep till after the bulletin, then someone wakes her up and puts her in a minicab. The Free Wales Army, all four of them, stormed the studio at one time, overpowering our chubby security guards. They're brought down by a couple of writers and told where to go. Wales is suggested. Cameramen rarely get to meet each other because they're always away on different assignments. One Friday night, though, finds five of them together in the bar upstairs. They're winding each other up, the dares escalating with each round. Around nine o'clock, one shouts, Let's all go to Heathrow and get on the first flight we can get. Oh, really? Oh, yes. They head excitedly towards the lift. They'll be in the wine bar across the road, I think. But no. Next morning, a girlfriend calls the desk and says, Has Simon being sent away somewhere? Will he be away all weekend? What do you say? What can you say? Can't remember what we said, but basically we cover for them, telling little white lies to their anxious families and not mentioning their disappearance to management. These guys, like many others, risk their lives for the company. In nasty situations, they can look after themselves. Nevertheless, by Tuesday, with not a whisper, we're seriously worried. On Wednesday morning, as we debate whether to call the police, a huge bomb goes off in Northern Ireland near the border, and minutes later, the news desk's phones erupt with calls from the missing crews. They've been on the lash in Dublin, and were working on cover stories to explain their absence when the bomb went off. Now they're on the way to it. We get terrific multi-camera coverage. Their absence goes unpunished. 
Let me take you back to August the 16th, 1977, a quiet news day. Not much going on anywhere. Does the date mean anything to you? OK, well, this is what happened on August the 16th that year at half past eight in the evening. Elvis Presley died. Remember him? Please say you remember him. Elvis is dead. The king is dead. The newsroom is buzzing. We're all shook up. The excited News at 10 programme editor holds an impromptu meeting. We obviously have a new lead, he says. Here's what we're going to do. He barks instructions. Shake, rattle and roll, people. Lots of work to do. One reporter starts on the obituary. Another bashes the phones, trying to interview anyone who'd met Elvis. A minicab is dispatched post-haste to Teddington to pick up the producer's collection of Elvis records. Spotify, not even a dream then. I book a satellite from a Memphis TV station to get the latest pictures. Then I ring our Washington correspondent and tell him to get his ass down to Memphis and don't spare the horses. Dear boy, he says, I'm the Washington correspondent. I do politics, not showbiz. Unless you can tell me the president's been shot, I say, there's no argument. Just get on the plane. And I hang up. The newsroom is alive with the sound of Elvis. Such a night. When it's all over, the funeral and so on, the Washington correspondent, basking in the reflected glory of the biggest story of his career, apologises for being such a prat. Very occasionally on a big story, there are no pictures, no film. Such was the case in 1982, the Falklands War. Some of you may recall that Argentina invaded the British Falkland Islands and Prime Minister Maggie Thatcher, the so-called Iron Lady, declared war. The Ministry of Defence permitted us one reporter and a crew with the troops on the refurbished cruise liner Canberra and a reporter and camera crew on the destroyer Hermes. We also sent a crew to Punta Arenas in southernmost Chile where we hoped to repair a Catalina flying boat and fly our team into the war as the first crew to operate independently of the MOD. As detailed in a previous episode, that enterprise failed. We have a presence too in Montevideo just in case Uruguay gets involved in the war. Sadly, our reporter got sick and they ripped out his appendix before you could say severe tummy upset, which was actually what was wrong with him. In the office I get to record an interview with our reporter on Canberra while he's on his way to the Falklands. The conversation over an MOD radio telephone line goes something like this. Me. How are you? Reporter. Fine, thanks. Me. Where are you now? Reporter. Uh, Sorry, I'm not permitted to tell you that. Me. What's the weather like? Reporter, after a pause. I can't give you that information. Me. Have you got your shorts on yet? This is a cunning question. If he's got his shorts on, he must already be in warmer waters and we can make a guess as to Canberra's progress towards the Falklands. Reporter. I'm not permitted to tell you that. Me, exasperated. What can you tell me? Reporter. Not a lot, really. We're all fine. The food's okay. We're all getting plenty of exercise. The line crackles and the MOD minder on board, the the one who's been monitoring and censoring our reporter, says, I'm afraid that's it for this time, oh boy. I say, well, that was a bloody waste of time. This is a war, he responds. Just remember that. Security, you know. Later on, this particular reporter and crew yonked with British ground forces from one end of the island to the other, but with no outlet for his reports. Meanwhile, the veteran war correspondent on Hermes is able to provide us with action stuff, all censored, of course, and the MOD released video of successful operations, not of the ones that fail. At the end of it all, the veteran blags a military lift back to Blighty. I charter a plane and go with the editor and his deputy to meet him at Bryce Norton. 
The deputy requires several large scotches before he'll get on the plane. The veteran gets a hero's half-hour documentary on TV. Three days later, my telex machine rattles into life with a long script from the other reporter about his Falklands trek. He thinks his documentary will run about 25 minutes. It's a Saturday. The show producer says it'll take two minutes, no more. It's old news now. The reporter doesn't agree and is absolutely livid. You can see the steam coming from the machine. Sorry, mate, I type. I know you've had a bad time, but two minutes it is, and you just have to accept it. You can't hang up on a telex machine, so I go to the loo. He's still tapping out his anger and frustration when I come back. This assignment is his big thing, his big career chance. I think I hear him sobbing from the other end of the world. One big advantage of being deputy senior foreign editor is that you can send yourself on assignment every now and then. You persuade the bosses you need to get out on the road. Getting a bit rusty, you know. Need to keep my hand in. So, I add my name to that of the crew and reporter who will be accredited to cover the Queen and Duke of Edinburgh on their latest overseas tour. I won't tell you where we're going yet. All I'm saying is it's going to be hot and it's not a war zone. So, in the next episode, please join me, the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh on our exciting overseas tour in the sun. This is Vernon Mann. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Thank you.